We promised you a COVID-19 update with Dr. Dietrich. He's with us live via telephone, the great doctor, the uh, great uh, pediatrician, the wonderful author, Dr. Stuart Dietrich, with us live via telephone. Dr. Dietrich, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Malcolm. Good morning. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. Thought we'd start with uh, some good news. What's the experience like when you get to um, when you get to um, uh, be there when a patient who has survived a tough episode of COVID nineteen is released from the hospital? It's laboratory. You know, I think most hospitals in the New York area. Uh, I can't speak for all. I can speak, uh, for instance, at Maimonides when a COVID patient is discharged. Uh, there's a song that comes over the airways of the PA system. Every staff member knows what that song means. <laughs> it means another COVID patient is being discharged. Uh, yesterday I was on the ward uh, when I was speaking to one of the uh, physicians on one of the recovery wards, uh, you know, that for the COVID patients. And uh, he, he was actually the ward that one of my patients was discharged from two days ago, the young lady with Down syndrome. Uh, and uh, he was celebrating, telling me that they, what we call, decannulated two patients with tracheotomies, meaning they were able to get the trach tube out, which was the transition to recovery. And I have to tell you, when you see physicians and nurses celebrating decannulation, you know you're in the right times, because uh, never before in history has staff celebrated decannulating patients, you know, getting trachs out in, in a communal way. So that's what it's like when uh, those patients go home or even improve. There's huge celebration and pride within the hospital when that happens. You um, you visit more than one hospital in the New York area on a regular basis. Uh, we know that the the peak and the uh, uh, this curve up really started to go up in 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 the in the March twenties. Let's put it that way. Would you say the hospitals are now? In that type of environment, the way it was at the end of March, would you say it's more like February? How would you describe where the hospitals are at right now? So currently, you know, I only go to one regularly right now. However, I will tell you, I speak to hospitals in the city every day. Uh, I have patient families who are there and different community members who contact me, you know, to try to glean information or get advice on, you know, new things that are coming up. I will tell you what, what the hospitals look like. Thank God the census counts overall the number of patients in every hospital is down dramatically from what it was even five weeks ago. Wow. Uh, the the issue is that most of the patients who are still COVID recovery patients are still very sick. Uh, many of them are currently critical still, uh, and many of them are transitioning to other levels of care, meaning they need either rehab facilities or they need respiratory facilities to continue their respiratory care. So the hospitals are, uh, there. you will see open beds everywhere around certain floors in the hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, but in the ICU level floors, the floors are still full uh, with patients because either uh, we have new, smaller number of new cases trickling in, thank God, much smaller, uh, or uh, the, the, oh, the long-term transition COVID patients are not able to be moved anywhere currently. Uh, there's not a lot of place to put them right now. I know that you give us unlimited time with these updates, and I appreciate that. And we'll try to get to everything, but I think we need to start in terms of what's happening medically, uh, especially with your expertise in the uh, field of pediatrics with the children. If you if you believe the media, and we know sometimes they could be a bit alarmist. That's after all what sells them and uh, what creates their ratings. Uh, but if you believe them, that they are really focused. 
on the uh, n- on the cases that are now involving children. Can you safely say that those are still few and far between? Yeah. So you know, I, I you know, for the first time in my career, I think the media is actually correct on this one. Wow. Uh, you know, I think the media does overblow things in general. The issue, the reason the media is getting those cues is because it's coming not only from the local health departments here in New York City and New York State, but it's also now coming from the CDC as the data comes in from all over the world. What we do know is that children in at least in rare cases uh, can develop that uh, the complication, uh, the inflammatory complication of that's similar to Kawasaki disease or toxic shock syndrome. Uh, in New York State, for instance, as of yesterday, I believe the count was about 106 documented cases. Uh, there have been four, three to four fatalities. Uh, we don't know the exact number yet. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's a high fatality rate for that complication. That being said, it's still considered a very, very rare complication, and most pediatricians have never seen it yet, thank God, uh, because of the rarity of it. So parents should not be panicked by this complication at all, including my own parents in the practice that I reinforce this to consistently. What I do have a concern about, and this is something that's being discussed at the highest levels of um, the agencies that monitor these things, is that children have been separated now for nine, ten weeks, uh, which means they're not together uh, in school or daycare, which means they're having less of every infection. Uh, For instance, uh, we're not seeing strep throats in our practice for the most part. We're not seeing adenovirus or croup that we often see in the spring and summer months. So children, we're seeing less infections across the board. My fear is that when we put children back together in big groups shortly, if we can, that we will see more COVID in children, and thus we'll see more of this complication rate in children. So that's the fear that I have. Um, I don't know how to assuage that fear until we get data on it as we release mitigation throughout the country. New York State is not ready to release mitigation, or New York City certainly is not. Certain parts of the state are where they have minimal cases. But New York City is not ready to release mitigation, so we won't have that data yet. But based on experience in other parts of the country where they are releasing mitigation, we hope to be able to detect whether children are being affected by this in larger numbers. Right now, it's a rare complication, and right now, parents need not worry about it. But if they see these signs in their children, if they're seeing conjunctivitis, red tongue, red lips, an unusual rash, large lymph nodes around the neck, abdominal pain, those are the things they need to call their pediatrician about so the child can be worked up correctly. Dr. Stuart Ditchick is with us, talking about COVID-19, of course. Um the whole country's talking about testing. It's a big, big topic. You've been quoted as having said uh, that uh, that testing for COVID uh, has a 30% um, a false negative rate. Would you say that's across the board or any tests more reliable than others? No, it's not across the board. It, it really varies in, in many ways. It varies with the type of test you're doing, whether they're the rapid tests or the more accurate tests that the hospitals are doing. Uh, It varies with the degree of severity of illness of the patient. It varies what stage the patient is in. Some of the centers have reported false negative rates of 30% with COVID swabs. I have a father in the practice that we tested this week who certainly had every uh, significant sign of COVID, loss of taste, loss of smell, 
and he swapped negative so far. We're probably going to re-swap him again. Uh, there have been many reports throughout the country of people who swapped three, four times until they converted to positive. So just like we don't understand everything about the conversion to negative, we, were, we right now, there's a lot of testing flat platforms going on throughout the country. So we don't know yet completely what the cross-the-board false negative rate is. What we do know, and we're seeing this in the hospitals, is that the critically ill patients can remain positive for many, many weeks. Uh, we've all seen patients remain COVID positive by swab for six or up to eight weeks in some cases. But we also know that those swabs that reflect that are probably just reflecting residual virus uh, mm. and not true infection. So COVID can stick around but by detection for many weeks, but we don't believe that those patients are still contagious, although we treat them as such because we don't want to risk it. So, yeah, there is a significant false negative rate, and that's why if you have symptoms consistent with COVID, the, all the classical symptoms, you should assume you have it and isolate and quarantine. That way you don't infect somebody else accidentally. Is there any more research regarding whether uh, someone is immune if they've had it already? So the, the, that data is really uh, completely not ready for prime time yet. Uh, Mount Sinai put out some very good data about two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, from their plasma antibody retrieval program, showing that people who were positive by testing made a significant amount of antibodies. People who suspected they had it but weren't confirmed by testing didn't make uh, as many antibodies or as frequently. What we do know is that right now we're looking, and, and many of the centers are looking at follow-up antibody testing on people who, who were screened for antibodies over the last many weeks. And there is some early suspicion that uh, these patients can lose uh, many uh, of the antibodies, the IgG antibodies, over a period of three, four weeks. What we do, uh, For instance, people who donate plasma, you'll hear about this from people who've gone to donate plasma. Many of you were told, yeah, you have enough antibodies to donate, please come and donate. Two, three weeks later, when you go to donate, they recheck your antibody level, and at least in some cases, people have been told you no longer have enough antibody for donation. Not in all, but in some. So the fear is that this is really a short-term immunity. However, the good news is there are memory cells in our immune system that remember this virus and probably uh, continue to protect us somewhat. The important message is that people should not be relying on the antibody test being currently used all over New York by different clinics and clinicians as an immunity passport. Nobody, no expert has said that. Dr. Fauci has spoken about this uh, in great detail, as has as every expert in the country. We don't currently have an immunity test for COVID. We have an antibody test for COVID, which is being used to study the disease and the recovery, but it is not yet an immunity test and should not be used as such. Lamaisa, as we say in the vernacular, are the plasma donations helping patients recover? Dramatically, yes. I, I think we should be very proud as a community that the Jewish community has donated more plasma than any community in the world. And that is a huge Kiddush Hashem, which I am so proud of as, as being a member of that community. So I, unfortunately, have not donated. I'm not able to yet. I don't have antibodies yet, but if I did, I would donate. And it is helping patients. Do we know the data on plasma donation, whether those patients are recovering at a greater rate? No, we don't have that data yet, but it's building and growing. 
And I think until we know otherwise, we should be donating plasma. But you've uh, you've seen patients who've had that transfusion or infusion, and they have done well in recovering. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I've seen both. I've seen those that have done well, and I've seen those that have, you know, not recovered. So it really depends very much likely on what stage of the course you give it, whether it's given early, whether it's given late. That There's studies going on uh, throughout the world right now on when to give plasma. But this is not a new thing. We've been giving plasma antibodies for many diseases throughout uh, many, many years. It's only new for COVID. Right. So we, we know that it's an established therapy. The question is, is it saving COVID patients? And I think right now we should assume it is, but, but we need data to confirm that. Doctors never assume you treat based on data, not based on assumption. Dr. Dietrich, we've heard a lot about treatments and uh, the hydrochloroquine and all that. Now, yesterday, uh, I, I heard about this combination that people are recommending of remdesivir and some type of antibiotic. What do you think of that cocktail? That's also a new, uh, I, don't, I don't know about the specific study right now, but I will tell you this. There's, there's a huge number of clinical trials going on with drugs, with stem cells, uh, with all kinds of modalities, infusion, plasma infusion antibodies, monoclonal antibodies. I mean, I can go on and on down the line. I will tell you one thing. Um, there's over the Millikan uh, Foundation, I think, recently published, and they update it daily, I believe there's over 320 trials going on with different therapies right now worldwide, and that's a large number. Um, the FDA is being overwhelmed with you know new proposals now every day for different combinations of drugs. Remdesivir was the only one and is the only one that's been approved by the FDA. So you're going to find now that people will, doing, will be doing combination studies to see if we can add drugs to remdesivir uh, to make it a more potent therapy. Uh, I'll tell you what's pretty exciting from my perspective, and I've seen this, I've been following the data, and the task force, uh, the research uh, independent task force that I've been working with, uh, we actually meet once a week by Zoom, and we discuss different therapies that we're trying to whittle down what's working and what's not. These are experts from all over the country. Uh, we're not allowed to discuss publicly, you know, yet what we, you know, what we're looking at, but we are looking at a large range, wide range of therapies. What the, we haven't looked at yet, but I hope we will in the future, and all centers are looking at this right now, as the mesenchymal stem cell uh, therapies. Uh, those are the ones that you heard about initially from Israel. Right. Uh, these are very, very uh, important, uh, immature uh, fetal-type cells that can be found in different parts of the human body, and they actually do two things, uh, three things, which make it important for COVID recovery. Uh, they uh, make the immune system work better to kill viruses. They make the immune system work less so we don't harm ourselves while we're trying to kill the virus. Those are those cytokine storms. And most importantly, stem cells have a reparative effect. They can repair human tissue at the site of damage. So there's a belief that mesenchymal stem cells can be infused into patients, help the immune response, kill virus, not harm themselves, not have the human being harm themselves with their own immune response, and at the same time repair areas of the lungs which have been damaged by this horrible virus. So I think mesenchymal stem cells are going to be looked at closely in the next six months throughout the world, uh, and I'm, I'm a little, at least a little optimistic that it's a better therapy, and hopefully we'll be able to get a better cure for this. 
Uh, well, then you know my next question, because we are a very impatient people, and I mean human beings, not necessarily people in the Jewish community. Uh, I think people are starting to uh, have a reality check and are starting to own up to the fact that we may have a very difficult year ahead, meaning Purim to Purim, and that you know every holiday and every event that we either planned or that's normally on the calendar this time around is going to be very different uh, because you just said months. You said that you know down the road it could be a while before these therapies are available or a vaccine is, uh, is actually one that's uh, considered uh, successful. Uh, with that in mind, are you willing to discuss in May of 2020 some type of timetable? Wow. <laughs> now you're asking me to put on a Navi hat, which yeah. I don't own. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I barely own any hat. <laughs> but let me just, let me tell you that the great news, in my view, and I, I want people to be re- reassured by this, the greatest minds in the world are working on solutions for this problem, not only in the United States, but worldwide. There has never been a, an effort worldwide like what's going on with COVID right now. Yes, it comes out of fear. Yes, it comes out of experience that we've lost so many. Uh, But I want you to know that this effort now to get things right is really dramatic and from a physician perspective exciting because even the vaccine, which is our only true way out of this right now, uh, they are fast-tracking this vaccine development to a point that no research has ever, ever experienced before. Uh, Now, they have the benefit that this virus was very similar to the SARS virus where they were developing previous vaccines, so they were able to jumpstart the research by many years. However, when the vaccine becomes available, and I am confident that there will be a winner in the vaccine world by November, hopefully, maybe December or January, life will get much, much better because we'll have some protection, not full protection, but some protection from covid The other good news is that as we get used to living with this virus, our bodies will become more immune to it just by being around it naturally, as happens with all viruses in nature uh, or in in society. So uh, the good news is that vaccine is on the way. But we need something else to make society livable right now, which you hear the experts talking about. Most people don't understand what it means. We need the ability to test on at point of service means at wherever the patient's being seen, whether it's a doctor's office or emergency room, uh, we need the ability to test uh, for positives to isolate that person for the period of time that's reasonable for them to recover and not infect others. And we need the ability uh, to trace or contact tra- track their contacts. In other words, everybody uh, Joseph was exposed to uh, in a close fashion, needs to be quarantined for 14 days so they don't spread it to others when they get sick. Mm-hmm. Those three elements we don't have yet in the United States. They do have it in Israel. They do have it in South Korea. They do have it in Singapore. Certain countries have started it. We're not there yet, and that's why we need to be there to safely put societies back together where we've been seriously affected, like New York and New Jersey. That's the key issue. One of the biggest issues we're going to have to face as a community very shortly is when we do test positive, when society gets back to normal, we have to be forthcoming with those who are tasked with tracing uh, all the contacts, in other words, to put people in isolation so they don't infect others. I do have a fear within our communities because of the reactions to date, because people are upset about being quarantined. Or, or not being able to do what they want to do, 
that they may not be forthcoming in all cases to the contact tracers. And I have a fear of that in our communities, and I think we need to address it. I think the Rabbanim need to address this urgently uh, in order to tell people it is halakhically forbidden to not be forthcoming about who you are in contact with. And that could occur in shuls, potentially, in the near future. And people will have to be honest about it, because if they're not honest about it, they may seriously harm somebody close to them or not close to them. Speaking of rabbinic intervention, do you fear that because there is a segment of our community that has been active in the anti-vaxxing campaign, that once this vaccine is available, they may become even more vocal, causing much more trouble, I believe, in general society and the media than, than the times we had it with, uh, with measles and other vaccines? Yes. No, I was Actually, I had a very uncomfortable interaction with an anti-vaxxer yesterday. I, they pop up on the social media where I try to educate communities uh, recently. But I, I, I have to tell you, as always been my policy, I don't debate anti-vaxxers because I think this is absolute counter to science. These are not people who are based in reality. But right. the anti-vax community, now that the shock is over, they if you look at their social media pages, and we do look at them frequently, uh, and I've discussed these even with health department officials recently, they are gearing up to a major campaign. Uh, I'll tell you what's out there already, which is fascinating. I was confronted with this uh, two days ago. Uh, one of the anti-vaxxers actually accosted me out on the street uh, and uh, started yelling that the doctors have created a fake pandemic uh, in order to get more vaccines into our communities to kill children. Those were the words that person used, uh, if you can believe that. So the answer is these are not people based on reality. What I will tell you, and I can guarantee this to everybody on the air, New York City will not allow a single child into the school systems who is not only fully vaccinated for everything, but specifically for COVID and for flu during the coming season when the COVID vaccine becomes available. They will not allow it. There will be zero tolerance for any child in New York City, and I believe New York State as well, for any child to enter the school system without a COVID and a flu vaccine. And I want the anti-vax community to hear that clearly. Your children will not be allowed into schools. Uh, Number two, uh, we have to be very sure to police ourselves that there's no falsified vaccine records out there, which we did experience during the measles crisis uh, last year or two years ago. What happens, uh, what happens to a doctor who signs falsified vaccine records? If that doctor is caught, they will lose their medical license very quickly. Uh, there's a process whereby they'll lose their license. They'll have a professional misconduct complaint referred to the state. The state uh, education department will then have a series of hearings. And in all likelihood, any doctor who has proven to falsify a vaccine record will lose their medical license. And it's potentially a felony because those records are transmitted electronically very often. And they're they're taking a bigger risk in this case because of the attention that COVID-19 is getting. Correct. And right now, I can tell you the tolerance of the local uh, and state health departments for any activity that's counter to public health is very serious. They are not playing, and they are correct about that. COVID can kill. COVID in combination with flu can kill more, and we cannot allow any wiggle room for this to spread because of the anti-vaccine community. Finally, Dr. Dietrich, uh, you know what the last topic is. Uh, unlike our uh, colleagues and your colleagues, frankly, in Israel, 
uh, where they are able at this point to make certain accommodations to uh, pray outdoors. Are you still uh, firmly recommending that no minyanim take place tonight, tomorrow, or any time in the near future in the New York, New Jersey area? Absolutely. Without equivocation, that is 100% true. As 99% of physicians I have spoken to have agreed with that. Uh, there are rare physicians who will make accommodation. I will not. Neither will the ones that I'm speaking to. And 99 per, and 99% of rabbis, Doctor Dietrich, and 99% of rabbis have agreed as well. Correct. Correct. I have rabbanim have come. Now I want you to know the Sephardic rabbis of Brooklyn and Deal, uh, along with the doctors of our community, uh, have put together. There's going to be a letter. Uh, they asked me to edit. I actually held the conference call with one other doctor. Dr. Danny Madelon, who is representative of the Spartac community and many of the Spartac rabbinical leaders, and they are putting out a letter in the next 24 hours specifically outlining no minyanim in synagogues, private homes, or outdoors because of the continued risk. Uh, we released data yesterday from the National Institute of Health on people who speak loudly transmit thousands of COVID particles that get suspended in the air. That includes when you're in a minion. If you, you know, say uh, any response loudly, you will now transmit co- or uh, COVID particles will leave your mouth. Uh, there are obviously those who say, yeah, but we can handle that with masks. Well, let me tell you something. As I told the rabbis, in the best scenario in the hospitals of COVID units, where doctors and nurses are dressed in full PPE with goggles, shields, gowns, gloves, masks, Doctors and nurses have still gotten sick from COVID, infected in the hospital with the best protection. So how these minyanim can guarantee no cross-infection in a minion when we can't guarantee it in any emergency room or ICU in the country, I don't understand. So there should be no, we are starving this virus right now. The virus is starving because it needs the human lung to live. If we continue to starve this virus, we're going to win. If we feed the virus by now loosening restrictions before we're able to, we're going to feed this virus and we're going to lose big. Amazing the way you present that, and I appreciate it so much. Dr. Stuart Ditchick, of course, COVID-19 update. You heard what he had to say about tonight and tomorrow. Stay out of shul, stay out of indoor minyanim, and yes, even stay out of outdoor minyanim that are taking place. And he's explained exactly why and it makes a lot of sense and by the way dr dietrich i'll have to i want to add one other thing because you mentioned uh people with proper ppe uh and and over the board ppe um uh you know still have gotten sick and you described of course the hospital scenario we know our people and we know human beings you put together a minion even outdoors and you think that no one is going to eventually, within minutes, be standing next to you and speaking to you, even about something to do with the davening, even about, you know, who's going to daven chakra, it's anything. If you think that's the case, you're, you're, completely, you're, you're completely misguided. Because we know what happens. We know that in a social atmosphere, even one in which you're trying your hardest to stay away from people and not speak directly to people, etc., because of habit, it's going to happen, and usually within minutes, not even hours later. Correct. And the more people that show, the more people it will happen with, and it multiplies. By the way, Dr. Fauci mentioned this on the Zoom conference at the OU. Uh, he's not Jewish, but he knows we have DNA. He said specifically, it is part of the Jewish people to be close to each other. Right. Those were his words. Exactly. Why, why does Dr. Fauci, who, who is not Jewish, 
understand that issue better than we do. I think we should ask ourselves that question. I think the answer is because he grew up in Brooklyn. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> and he's got the Brooklyn accent. Yeah, but you're 100% you're right. He, he hops the whole thing. He understands why families should just stay in their homes and, right. and enjoy Kabbalah Shabbos tonight with their children. And, 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 and tomorrow, read the two partios at home. The way the way the way our Torah. I don't know if you saw the letter signed by uh, Torah giants uh, from this area um, uh, on behalf of Hatzalah, but but we're talking about the 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 most respected names, the people who, frankly, people in our community run to for sometimes I dare say the silliest of questions, or at least that appear to be. I, I want to be careful the way I say that because to, to people obviously in, in a situation it's not a silly question, but to us it would appear to be a question not even needed to be asked, and they and they rightfully are listening to every word that that Gadol Torah, that that great Torah giant responds to them with. But when it comes to this, when the Gadol Torah says stay home, for some reason they're not willing to listen. It's amazing. It's a fascinating phenomenon, and. Honestly, I think the only mistake we made in the medical community at the outset of this is we should have been, uh, while protecting patients' privacy somehow, we should have been showing people what COVID units look like at the peak of the, uh, of the event so they could see the dramatic scenes never seen before in the world of hundreds of patients in, in one institution on ventilators, one hospital. You know, some hospitals have over 150, 200 ventilators and more. Uh, more. There were some hospitals that had upwards of 280 to 300 patients on ventilators. That, That's yeah. never happened in history. Yeah. It's never occurred, and people should understand we're not being overly cautious. We're trying to save their lives by keeping everybody uh, closely, uh, uh, closely apart, I should say, meaning right. separated from the rest of society until this thing blows through us. And that's why, by the way, uh, we have a debt of gratitude. It's not the exact same scene as you just described, but we have a debt of gratitude to people like uh, Ellie Beer and Ellie Schwabel and others who released videos when they were at the height of their sickness to show people that if you are lax regarding mitigation, you could end up like this, barely yeah. able barely able to breathe, barely able to live life. And in one case, the MSG director, who thank God recovered, who many people know from Madison Square Garden Productions, uh, he said he literally... Um, he literally was on the phone with a relative of his and said, I want to die. This is so bad. I want to die. Now, in retrospect, of course, he said he didn't mean that, obviously. Right. But but you get the point that it, that, God forbid, you get COVID somebody, you could be at a point where you are praying that God put an end to the misery. Yes, I, I analogize it to take, a, uh, take something, cover your face for 10 seconds with a pillow or with an object to block your breathing. That's how COVID patients in the, in the early stages, meaning when they're in the hospital at the early stages, feel at some point. You can't get a breath into your, into your mouth, into your airway. It is the most frustrating, frightening thing to witness uh, a patient being oxygen-starved by a simple viral infection. Uh, it was, it's the scariest thing you can ever imagine. Unbelievable. Uh, thank you, and God bless you. Thanks for your amazing work on behalf of our community and on behalf of all humankind throughout this entire thing. It's much appreciated. And have a, a wonderful, peaceful, and somewhat lonely Shabbos. I know for you it's never lonely because you have to take care of so many patients, but you get my point. Let's stay as alone as possible while we stay as together as possible. Thank you, Nochum. Good Shabbos, and I appreciate the time. Dr. Stuart Ditchick, COVID-19 update here at JM in the AM. I thank him for his words.